Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is Dr. Philip Mosley, the author of Telling of the Anthracite. This is the first book about how we tell the Pennsylvania anthracite story in the post-industrial age, and it places this discourse in the broader context of environmental and socioeconomic change. It is a work of regional history that is scholarly in tone, yet written in a style accessible to the general reader. It explores the various ways in which anthracite history has been represented and remembered since 1960. A native of England who came to the USA in 1988 Philip Mosley is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of English and Comparative Literature at Penn State University, author of a number of books on literature and cinema, including Anthracite, and most recently, Resuming Maurice. He is also a translator of works by Belgian Francophone authors and was awarded the Prix de la Tradition or Traduction, sorry, in 2008. Sorry for ba- <laughs> butchering the French. Maybe you can correct me. Dr. Mosley, welcome. Well, thank you, Lawrence. You know, one of the things that, that struck me about it was the term post-history, post-historical. And as somebody who is working on a PhD in history, I'm, it's, I see it as something alarming that gets labeled as post-historical because I think, what is this after my profession? So I kind of wanted to discuss first uh, what's meant by post-historical. I was thinking about a suitable term to uh, embrace the period I'm looking at. Um, I thought about the fact that anthracite mining in northeastern Pennsylvania has a fairly long history, and quite a lot of that history has been documented in, in various ways. But what about the period since the industry has more or less disappeared? I mean, it still exists, of course, in pockets here and there in the region. But to all intents and purposes, as a major industry, it's gone. Uh, And I thought, well, that's really a period from about 1960, and there are specific reasons why I chose 1960 as a starting date, uh, to the present day. So a 60-year span when the industry really is no longer with us. And rather than try and approach my subject or call the book, another book about anthracite history, I wanted to distinguish it a little bit by uh, showing that it's not really about that long history, which has been written about right. extensively, but about this period since the industry collapsed. Well, I kind of like And uh, yeah. hence, the, hence the term post-history popped into my head, um, because in a way we are talking now about the history after the history of anthracite, so to speak. <laughs> and also because, um, you know, uh, people are familiar a lot with terms these days, uh, such as post-structuralism, uh, post-modernism, and so on. So I thought it would uh, not be too much of a stretch for readers to pick up on my meaning there. No, it, it makes a lot of sense. And as an historian, or a budding one anyway, I see something post-historical and I get nervous. <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'll explain, you know, from an historian's perspective... I think you're onto something in the sense of post-history and that the discipline of history is all about primary sources. And most of those primary sources up until recent times have been written record. 
whether that's letters, journals, you know, official records, biographies, whatever, newspapers from way back when. So we live in a digital age now. Now, the digital age didn't start like it is today in 1960, but there's definitely been a, tr a trend away from sort of that traditional history as well. So when I see post-history, it kind of almost has dual meaning to me in that I get your, you know, it's the period after the histories that are commonly out there. But it's also uh, in the discipline, it's an interesting age of like a digital age of complexity that uh, probably still hasn't been sorted out as to how history is going to be uh, recorded yeah, in the future. So well, that's a that's an interesting uh, view of it from from the historian's perspective. Yeah, I should of course emphasize that I'm an amateur historian. Uh, I hope a, a halfway decent one, as this book will show. But uh, my fields, of course, uh, uh, professionally were English uh, comparative literature, uh, film studies, so basically literature and, and cinema. But I've always been fascinated by history. In fact, uh, when I was in my last year in high school, it was a toss-up whether I would major in history or English at university because I was pretty good at both. And in the end, uh, I thought to myself, well, do I want to spend the next few years uh, reading um, historical textbooks and uh, poring over uh, archaic documents, or do I want to spend those years reading novels, poems, and plays? Right. Well, it was, uh, I guess, a no-brainer. So I went with the English. And uh, But I've always loved history, and now I've retired from Penn State after um, almost 30 years working there. Um, I decided, okay, I've retired. I'd love to try and write a history book and rekindle my own personal passion for history. No, and I think you've done a fantastic job. And, you know, obviously we signed you as an author. I functioned as your editor, hopefully did a half-decent job at that. But during during the editing process, got to really know your material. And, uh, you know, as an historian, I learned some things from you. And, you know, you're coming at it as someone not, you know, from, you're from a different field. And it's always interesting to see different takes on things. You know, you you're, you know, I just talked about uh, the problems with that historians have today with not having a lot of those written records anymore. But you went into the popular culture to find and to I, talk about how it, you know the history is portrayed or how current events are portrayed uh, in the area regarding anthracite. So I think interdisciplinary work is really yeah. uh, exciting. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, and and so this was an opportunity for me to make it in a way and uh, another uh, another vehicle for my interdisciplinary interests. And when I realized that the subject allowed me to talk about how this post-history has been um, transmitted, if you like, not only through the written word, as you said a few minutes ago, but also, you know, through visual arts, through performance arts, etc., uh, etc., et then I realized that it... it, it, it Automatically, the subject had an interdisciplinary uh, dimension, which would, I hope, be of interest to readers. Yeah. Well, listen, Philip, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back, and we'll talk about all the different ways that uh, we took a look at the popular culture. 
Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors from Pennsylvania and beyond. Check out Wiley McClellan's Unbridled Dreamer, Hemingway and the Rise of Modern Literature. If you're into sports, Kelly Parks, Just Like Me, When the Pros Played on the Sandlot, or Legendary Sports Figures by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley. If history is your interest, Mildred Schindler Jansen's true story of surviving Hitler, evading Stalin, or the French Invasion of Western Pennsylvania by Donald Kent. Find these and other great books at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Dr. Philip Mosley. We're talking about his book, Telling of the Anthracite. And um, regarding the popular culture, I know you kind of surveyed movies, music, plays, novels, poetry. Maybe give us a sense of your method and some of the interesting things that you came across. My method, did you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh the method really almost dictated itself out of years and years of collecting uh, information and building up uh, quite a number of folders full of, of, of material on the way in which anthracite is, uh, the anthracite story is told in different uh, forms. And uh, I, my own interest in cinema, for example, immediately drew me to uh, looking more systematically, more, more methodically at how anthracite has been covered uh, in, in uh, movies. And uh, my interest in music, uh, and I like all kinds of different kinds of music, also quickly uh, prompted me to, to find out uh, if there was some kind of a pattern, some kind, if you like, of a sort of micro history uh, of of how that particular um art uh deals with anthracite and so really it was the method was just uh, uh, a method of accumulating ideas and information of all kinds whenever anthracite was involved or anthracite history was involved anthracite culture and eventually I found myself faced with, uh, you know, I had amassed a large amount of information. And then after that, I suppose this is less method. It was a matter of organizing that material uh, coherently so that it could move from just being lots and lots of information about different aspects of the anthracite story and the way it's told to something that would... Um, cohere as as a narrative, as a book, uh, and, and I guess that's how it came about. Um, so, I mean, the process started quite a long time ago. I've been interested in this subject ever since I came to northeastern Pennsylvania, and I touched down in these parts in 1988, as you mentioned at the uh, top of the program, and um, immediately I was uh, fascinated by the history of the region I'd come to live in. And so I guess almost from day one, I started to make notes. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So, I mean, that's a long time back. We're talking 30 plus years now. But yeah, slowly and surely, I uh, discovered new things and looked around. You know, the best way to find out about something like this is also to get to know the region. And I spent a lot of time just exploring the region, getting to know it, getting a feel for not just the physical coordinates of the region, but the social and cultural coordinates of the region too. And uh, bit by bit, this uh, this 
uh, idea for this book took shape. Yeah, I know. I know uh, we, we publish a number of things about history in the region. A lot of that deals with railroads and coal mines and all that very, you know, large industries in the history of Pennsylvania. And I know growing up, you know, I, I remember a movie, How Green Was My Valley, about coal miners and whales. Yeah, and, you know, very rough, you know, difficult life, a dirty life, a short life. Uh, you know, the miners' life is, was definitely uh, quite rigorous it, and yeah, treacherous. Yeah, and that was another side of things that drove me. I've always, you know, um, when I was living in Scotland, which is where I taught before I came to Penn State, um, I lived in, in Glasgow and surrounding Glasgow in the west of Scotland there was also a coal mining area and there was a long tradition of, of mining in, in some of the, the towns around Glasgow. And uh, in the middle of the 80s uh, there was a, a very, uh, there was a, an infamous uh, miners' strike, a national strike in the UK at the time of the Margaret Thatcher government. And uh, I found myself getting, uh, you know, caught up a bit in that. And uh, my, I've always had uh, a sympathy for the loss of the miner. You know, uh, as you just mentioned, the, for, for most it was, and their families, it was a very, very hard life uh, for relatively scant reward. So I suppose also that that fundamental sympathy for the experience of the coal miner uh, was also something that uh, lay behind my wish to try and write something along these lines. And, and certainly when I came to northeastern Pennsylvania, I found that, the, you know, there's a sort of common history, really, that uh, west of Scotland, for example, or Wales, as you mentioned, and northeastern Pennsylvania might be thousands of miles apart, but the experience of the miner is in many ways the same wherever he uh, has to uh, labor for his, uh, his his bread. Very, very true. And, you know, the other thing is the, the pride with which those, those towns, those people, those workers that they had for their work in their communities. And I think, you know, what you've captured with your work, all the things you've been accumulating, especially events since you know, more recent times, the last 50, 60 years, obviously a decline in the industry, not just a decline of coal mining, but also the communities around those coal mines. So I, I think you, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, sort of the mood. The uh, It's almost dystopian in many ways. Yeah. A dystopia. Yeah, like... Um, uh, the op sort of the opposite of utopia, <laughs> yeah, something that's fa fading out, um, uh, disintegrating, uh, you know, declining. Uh, the, uh, the thing, yes, I, I take your point, Lawrence, and that's an interesting point. The only thing is, I mean, it never was a utopia right. to start with. I think it was always that, that pride you speak of was always mixed with a tremendous sense of realism on the part of the, the miners and their their families and their communities. They didn't imagine somehow that they were going to, you know, that the streets would be paved with gold when they came here to work in the mines. I think what they did expect, or what they did hope for and expect, and in many ways were uh, disappointed, was that they would have, you know, a decent way of life and a decent uh, reward for their work. So, but I, I think in terms of the industry, yeah, the, it, it is almost, uh, I mean, decline of an industry brings with it 
uh, a very depressed, not just a very depressed community, but a very depressed uh, physical landscape as well. And so, you know, the the landscape of anthracite post-history, sadly, is in many places, uh, and it's still evident, uh, a landscape of dystopia, yeah. uh, a landscape of something that is the absolute, as you're implying, the absolute opposite of, uh, you know, a pleasant environment. Yeah, no. uh, And, of course, post-history also allows for the fact that during that period, efforts have been made to reverse that as well. So mm -hmm. the post-history is, is indeed uh, a history of a dystopia in a way, but it's also the period in which much has been done to try to reverse that in the sense of bringing in new cultural attractions, cleaning, cleaning up the environment, uh, you know, that sort of thing, um, beginning to find positive meaning in right. that history, whereas before there was perhaps merely indifference or embarrassment or even humiliation sometimes on the part of the, the people of the, of the region. I think that's, you know, after a, a very, very difficult period when no one really wanted to talk about coal mining anymore, just wanted to forget about it. Uh, the good things about it, the positive things, the pride you mentioned, the uh, the, the communal bonds that were so strong, um, the uh, the tremendous uh, courage uh, of, of the miner, those things have begun to be uh, properly commemorated in different ways. And one of the key ways to do that, of course, is through uh, culture through mm -hmm. such things as literature and, and the arts. Well, let's My book largely tries to offer uh, a map of that process by which the reader can navigate this post-historical uh, transition. All right. Well, we're going to take another break, Phil, and we'll be back in just a minute. Sunbury Press Books opens the door to Pennsylvania Dutch and German history with our imprint, Distal Fink Press. Find out about the lives of figures in early American history through the Muhlenbergs of Pennsylvania or Conrad Weiser, Friend of Colonist and Mohawk by Paul A. Wallace, Joseph G. Rosengardens, The German Soldier in the Wars of the United States or The Indians of Berks County by D.B. Bruner. Check out the wide variety of available works, both fiction and nonfiction, at sunburypress.com. I'm talking to Dr. Philip Mosley, the author of Telling of the Anthracite. We're getting into sort of the nostalgia for the uh, northeastern PA anthracite region. Obviously now an industry in long decline and uh, a lot of cultural artifacts out there and also a lot of nostalgia for the past. Some, you know, some of the more sad, somber aspects of the situation. But I think there's... Um, you know, maybe not so much the miners themselves when they were alive. They obviously lived a hard life, got black lung, had all kinds of issues, dealt with poverty. They were not well compensated. We've covered that. But the the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of of those hard workers are very proud of that heritage to this day. Have you seen evidence of that in, in all the things you've collected? Well, yes, that's a very interesting point you raise, Lawrence, because I would agree with you that uh, – the, the children and the great-grandchildren of those mi minor generations uh, do have a great pride. But 
to what degree they are still uh, involved or even fully aware of the history is another question. And one of the things I try to do in the book, and it leads me towards the closing argument, is that uh, education is the key thing here. Mm-hmm. And that the, we, we are faced with something of a danger here, that unless anthracite history regional history in general, I would say, but anthracite history in particular, is systematically offered at high school or college level. There is a danger that as the last of the mining generations disappear, um, the descendants will no longer have much of a connection with it. And we may already be seeing that. So, for example, if you went up to a young person now who was, say, the great-grandson of a miner and said, how do you feel about your connection with, you know, your, your, your family's mining past, that person would doubtless say, as you suggested, well, yeah, you know, my granddad was a miner and he worked very hard and I'm very proud of that heritage. But at the same time, if you press that person to try to understand more fully what that history was and what it implied and what has happened to that history in other words the post history of which i write you might find that um you know two out of three of the of the young people you asked would not really be able to go any further because their lives are no longer integrally connected with the miners way of life it's not there for them anymore they live in a you, you hinted at it when you said now in our digital age it's so transformed. They live in a in a different age. Uh, their means of communication are different. Uh, their cultural uh, tastes are somewhat different. Uh, and the, the the challenge really is somehow to keep this valuable history alive. And part of the reason why I wanted to write this book was to provide, if you like, a, uh, an opportunity for people to see how that, 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 that history and the post-history, if you like, has been captured by artists and writers um, and that it's something that we should not lose. So I think that the pride of young people in their background and in their families' traditions and history is there. I would not doubt that. But the history, knowledge of that history, a full knowledge of that history and how it has, particularly how it not only shaped the region when the industry was at its height, but also how it has, should I say, misshaped the region during the post-historical period. And then to challenge people to ask questions about that and to say, well, what do we need to do? to A, prevent that, that, prevent that history from being lost, there is a danger. And secondly, uh, what would we do to keep it alive? Yeah, well, there's, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about Pennsylvania history, but really it's, there's regions within Pennsylvania, almost like three or four different states, you know, studying history and writing a lot about Pennsylvania history. You know, the Philadelphia region, a lot of colonial a lot of English colonial activity, and then you got the the valleys, uh, Lancaster into the Cumberland, and on down into Virginia. You have a lot of German 
Western PA, you have a lot of Scotch-Irish and woodsmen and Native American interactions. But Northeastern PA is a story uh, really starting more in the 19th century, coal mining, railroads, lots of immigrants from Eastern Europe and other areas. And it, it's, a, it's a different region. It has a different history, and it really shouldn't be lost. I completely agree. Uh, is, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, Lawrence. You're breaking up, I'm afraid. Ah, okay. Um, I lost you for a moment there. Well, uh, you sounded fine. Now, yeah, now you you were coming again. you were coming through pretty good. So hey, now uh, you're clear again. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear the part about uh, Philadelphia? Something about immigrants coming to northeastern Pennsylvania. Yeah. So and I lost it a bit. Okay. I'll uh, I'll start over with uh, my realization about the regions of Pennsylvania, and then we'll... <laughs> we'll I over. you're saying something about, you know, different regions within the Commonwealth, you know, the, the Western Pennsylvania and the, the Dutch yeah. country and so on. So. Okay, I'm going to, for the recording now, I'm going to start at that point, and uh, okay. Tori will just overlay it. Yep. So, when um, studying history of Pennsylvania, it's really like there's four or more major regions and you have your greater Philadelphia area, which has a lot of that colonial history revolution and so on. And then you've got the valleys west of there, which has a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch culture. Out in western PA, you go west of the mountains, you've got Scotch-Irish, Native American interactions, and that whole western Pennsylvania. But the northeastern Pennsylvania is a completely different story. It's A lot of it's in the 19th century and early 20th century. It's all about coal mines and railroads and a lot of immigrants from Eastern Europe and other places. So it definitely needs to be studied as a, as a unique area, for sure. Um, and I'm sure with everything you've collected, you, you probably would agree with that, that it uh, has a lot of unique character to it. Um, in, indeed. And I, one of the things that's always fascinated me has been the evolution of the immigrant experience in, in, anthracite, in the anthracite region, when you think that when coal was first discovered and begun to be mined, uh, you know, the pioneers were very often Anglos or, and, uh, they were, they were, uh, they were English, they were Scotch, they were Welsh, uh, and there were some Germans, I think, came in at that early point because they had the, they had the knowledge, they had the technique from the Industrial Revolution in Europe. And so they were, if you like, the first to come in and establish things and, then they started to climb the the ladder, and so there was need then to bring in more people to do the the grunt work. Uh, and so you then had, in connection with the the famine in the uh, in the mid 19th century, you had the huge influx of the Irish to the region until they became more or less the dominant uh, ethnic group in the region. And then as the Irish began to climb the ladder of the of the mining hierarchy, if you like. Uh, they had to look elsewhere, and so you, as you mentioned a moment ago, then you had a huge influx of uh, Slavic immigrants uh, from Poland, uh, Lithuania, Slovakia, etc., uh, and also Italian immigrants coming in around that same time. So, you know, and bit by bit they climbed the ladder until you know the really. That was, that was it, and then anthracite began to decline. But uh, the, I mean, I'm talking less about the post history, of course, uh, uh, right, of the right, history right. of anthracite. But to answer your question, yes, I mean that's one of the things that makes the area not only unique but also fascinating is the way in which different ethnic groups came in 
around the idea of coal mining. I mean, that was basically the thing that brought them here. And then, you know, as they established themselves more in regional society, they went, uh, they, they began to climb the totem pole, so to speak. And so you had to have more people coming in as long as the industry had this, you know, voracious appetite for human labor, which it did, uh, and, and so on and so forth until you had this, this multicolored patchwork of, 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 of immigrant groups in the region. After, after 1960, uh, my so-called uh, post-historical period, and in a moment I'll just clarify that if I may for the benefit of listeners, um, then of course really it was no longer, uh, there was no longer an immigrant story until recently when we found that because of the rise of, uh, uh, low-wage employment in things such as services and warehousing and that kind of thing. Uh, different kinds of ethnic groups have begun to come into the region, and that's something that I also address in my book as a, as a specifically post-historical phenomenon, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, prior to this post-historical period, there was very little in the way of uh, Hispanic uh, immigration to the area. And now, in certain parts of northeastern Pennsylvania, there's a very large uh, Hispanic population uh, drawn from uh, different sources. And, of course, also an, uh, an Asian uh, population as well uh, that has come in, uh, in, in in recent years, and which never, of course, existed before. So that pattern of immigration does continue, and it's been driven by an effort, which is a, an effort that has sometimes to be debated uh, and questioned, perhaps, an effort to provide new jobs in the region for the industries that have come in to uh, replace uh, the, uh, the, the lost coal mining. Industry, and I, I wanted just quickly to say, uh, in connection with my post-historical um, period, that I had chosen 1960. Two things that are very much at the heart of the book, two events that are very much at the heart of the book, heart of the book, and which drove this notion of post-history, were the Knox Mine disaster in Luzerne County in 1959, which more or less single-handedly put paid to deep mining in, in, mm -hmm. in the northern uh, fields, northern coal field, and by extension across the anthracite region very soon afterwards. And the Centralia mine fire, which started in 1962 and still burns today. Right. These two uh, cataclysms, uh, in a way, were stand as the, uh, as the symbols, if you like, of the dawning of this post-historical period. And I do address those uh, centrally in the book because I'm interested in how disaster of this kind, disaster that basically puts paid to an industry or, or hastens the demise of the industry, how these things are represented. Uh, because one not only has to... Um, remember positive side of things, the, the, the strong communities, the pride, the loyalty, all that, which is, of course, very important. But one also has to come to terms with the 
horrible implications of, of tragedies such as the, the two I've mentioned. Yeah, for sure. And, and for the longest time, there was a kind of collective amnesia about it. It was so awful that people didn't really want to talk about them. But the historian's job, and I think our job collectively in the community, is after a certain period to try to remember those things and put them in their proper perspective. I completely agree. Hey, we are just about out of time. Phil, I, I wanted well, sorry, to ask. I answered that last question rather at length. I, <laughs> no. I cut you short on your questions. No, no, that's quite all right. We only have a couple minutes to go. Uh, just uh, if you could just let the listeners know uh, it's a wonderful book. You're out promoting it. Uh, are there any events coming up that uh, they might be able to drop in and, and listen? Certainly, and I would welcome anyone with uh, even a, just a passing interest in this subject to, to, to come along. Uh, I'll be in uh, Shemokin on the 21st at the Shemokin Coal Township Public Library at 11 from uh, 11.30. And uh, I'll be in Wilkes-Barre on the, 20, on the 26th uh, delivering the annual Monsignor John J. Curran lecture uh, at uh, the downtown uh, location of King's College, right there in Public Square, Wilkes-Barre, uh, and that is uh, 7 o'clock, 6.30, 7 o'clock start. Uh, the following day, uh, the 27th of January, I'll be in Pottsville at the wonderful, restored, majestic theater on Center Street. Uh, and uh, looking ahead in March, uh, I'll be at the Charter Day of Eckley Miners Village, uh, in Luzerne County on Sunday, March the 12th. Very good. It's been great talking to you. I'm going to yes, try to I've get enjoyed this conversation very much, Lawrence. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with how the book looks and I appreciate all the work you and those at your end have done to make this book, uh, come out, uh, right at the beginning of 2023, which is a nice moment for it yeah. to come out. Well, we, we love doing it. I hope to see you at one of your events. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.